The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So here's what's different about this morning. Um, we are going to be looking at this topic rather than a Bible passage specifically. Um, the topic I want us to look at is this category of social media and mobile phones and this whole category. This is for anybody who's like been a regular here, like this is like, what are we doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm losing my bearings here. Um, we typically just look right at Bible passage and just say, what does this mean for our lives today? Um, this category is one that I have been thinking about and processing for a long time. I've actually, in the last year, I've taught this exact stuff about four or five times in other contexts, and I've read about 10 books on this category of social media and mobile phones and all this stuff, because for me, it's a category for my own discipleship that I'm concerned about. Um, this device uh, is a great temptation, and it comes with a lot of um, unknowns, and so I've been trying to understand um, how it, as a tool, fits into our lives as, a, as Christians, and what does it mean to be faithful with them. And um, it has been a year-long process for me in teaching this other context. Actually, the nice thing is that typically what happens is I'll preach a sermon here, and then I'll like improve it, and I'll preach it someplace else, and they get like the better stuff. <laughs> it's a bit reverse. I've preached about like four or five times in other churches, and uh, then you guys get the five-version processing of getting through this. But I'm still in process in how I think through this stuff. Um, just to kind of throw out the, this out there, I'm going to kind of work through a bunch of statistics and data. And if at any point you want that information, I will just give you my manuscript. Like that, this isn't any, by the way, that's true for any sermon. These aren't like secret manuscripts or anything like that. Books that I would recommend on this topic, if you're trying to think like, what do I pick up and read? Well, as a practical one, TechWise Family by Andy Crouch is really helpful. Um, but um, Tony Rinke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And then a secular uh, psychologist book, um, Irresistible, The Way Our Phones Are Designed to uh, Create Addictions. Is, has been really, really helpful. And so those are kind of like my primary sources I'm working through this stuff. But here's what I'm going to do. I just want to kind of put that out front. This is a little bit different, but this is a, a category and a, t a teaching topic I want us to kind of lay into because it's, it's important for my discipleship. I think it's important for our discipleship. And um, there's not just like one simple Bible verse to kind of go at this. So I'm going to pray for us, first of all, and then um, we'll kind of begin to kind of look at the lay of the land on this stuff. Father, um, You've created all things good, and we do want to be faithful. And Father, um, I pray that you would help us this morning to think through what does it mean to be faithful disciples with the tools, these amazing tools that have been provided to us. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful, not just because um, we want our lives to be peaceful, but because we want Jesus to be um, known in our hearts and known in our neighborhoods. So I pray you do this for his sake. Amen. I think the problem that I kind of want to lay out here is that um, the nature of what we're talking about is that uh, we're talking about a discipleship category. Um, discipleship means how do we follow after and become like somebody or something. And our phones are inherently designed, and social media, and the, I'm going to kind of be using both those interconnected inter, uh, or kind of flip-flopping between them. They're designed to disciple us, and so what I want to do is I want to kind of lay out the land of how is the social media world and our phones designed to disciple us, and then what are five biblical truths or five um, biblical realities that we can engage to be faithful disciples in that, in that stuff? Because 
the, the way we're kind of framing this is analog love in a digital age and fighting for faithfulness with invasive digital tools. The reason I'm using analog love is not because I'm trying to pick a bone in the fight of like analog versus digital sound or, you know, like should you put records on or should you put like digital on. I'm just trying to capture that there is a tangibleness of how God's designed us to be as Christians, that it should function in our lives, that the digital tools that we have at our disposal are designed to subvert and kind of undermine in a certain sense. Um, that's, that's kind of why we are using those words, analog love and a digital age. So we're going we're gonna to be using that analog word as we kind of work through this. And um, the main point of this whole thing is that we want to be fighting for faithfulness with invasive digital tools. And they're invasive. Um, the reason I'm saying that, and I'm going to show that, is that they're not designed as passive tools. So like your car is a passive tool. Like it's not like monitoring you to figure out like, how can I best serve Jacob? I, clearly, my car is not designed to figure out how I can best serve Jacob. <laughs> you know? Or like a hammer. It's a passive tool. It's not like you know, designed to figure out like how you best make a swing with a hammer. Your phones and the internet and social media are designed to understand who you are and how you function and then manipulate you. So that's why we're, that's, that's a discipleship category, right? Manipulation versus motivations is a discipleship category. And so to kind of kind of lay out some statistics. iPhones were released on June 29, 2007. That was just over a month after Michelle and I got married. And in the last um, almost 12 years, um, there are currently 5 billion mobile devices in the world and 2 billion smartphones. So 5 billion, remember those like Nokia brick phones that you had? Like if you're with my age when you're in high school and your dad would give you this, like call me if there's an emergency, you know? So that, there's 5 billion of those gadgets around, and then there's around 2 billion of these guys running around. And so, that just to put that in perspective, there are, I looked it up this morning, there are 7.593 billion people in the world. <laughs> so there's almost one device per person in the planet, right? We're talking from right, the slums of India to the, the highest heights of Manhattan. Almost every person has a mobile device at their disposal, which is incredible. Um, there are roughly, by the end of last year, so just a few days ago, there are about 2.8 million apps in the Android store and about 2 billion, I'm sorry, 2.2 million apps in the Apple store. So there are a lot of apps available for this device. They're all designed to use this device in its capacity. Uh, just keeping in mind there's about 7.5 billion people in the world. If you were to add together all the World of Warcraft users, and they formed a nation, it would be the 12th biggest nation on Earth. Okay, just, just, I don't play World of Warcraft. I've heard that it's a game. <laughs> right? I don't know. I, I'm fine if you play it. I don't, it's not a bone on that one. I'm just saying, right? There are 2.2 billion users on Facebook, 1.9 billion users on YouTube. Just to, and as I've taught this over the last year, YouTube and WhatsApp, both of those numbers are going up, whereas Facebook is kind of plateauing in terms of users. So uh, just that follows the demographics of younger audiences. So basically, if you're under 25, you're more likely to use YouTube than you are to use Facebook. So 1.9 billion users on, on uh, YouTube, 1.5 billion on WhatsApp, 1.3 billion on Facebook Messenger, right? And then just numbers just kind of continue to go down. So it just says these apps are not only been given a, uh, a platform, our phones, and been designed to use that platform, but they're being successful, right? We are using these, these devices. 
In contrast, just to put this in contrast, China has 1.4 billion people. All right, so Facebook, 2.2 billion users. China, right, they could invade America and with people of spare and destroy us, <laughs> right? They have 1.4 billion people. India has 1.3 billion people. And the U.S. has a measly 330 million people, right? So just to kind of put this in perspective, do you guys remember um, Mark Zuckerberg, right, the CEO, the president of Facebook, sits down in front of Congress this last year? And he sits down, he's, a, he's, the, he's the owner of Facebook, right? He sits down in front of the government of the, of the strongest nation on the planet, right? right? He sits down in front of the Senate and the Cong Congress, and they ask him questions. I don't know if you guys saw or saw any of that, those questions. It was a bit of like a really, really bad, like, um, you know, computer help phone call. <laughs> like, they're the questions... It did not give me great confidence in our senators and congressmen actually understanding what technology is, let alone being able to, how to use it. Um, they were, it was, I'm not digging on it. It's just a, a reality. Right? But think about this. So they, they own the push buttons, right, basically, for all of our nuclear arms and the strongest military force on the planet, um, the, one of the strongest economies in the world. And in a certain sense, Mark Zuckerberg sits down and is the most powerful man in that room because at his disposal is the way of manipulating and engaging 2.2 billion, right? Almost a, a quarter or more of the world's population, more so than any of these guys could ever do, who don't even know how to use what an Android phone is, let alone an iPhone. See, um, Steve Cook, who's a CEO of Apple, he made this comment a couple years ago, uh, and this is, this is kind of the clinching point of this, uh, this category. Um, let's see, it's, a few years ago, users of internet services begin to realize that when an online service is free, you're not the customer. You are the product. That's the, that's the key issue here with these phones and the, the way our social media is designed. You are not the customer, right? We kind of get frustrated with the way Facebook and things like that happen sometimes. You're not the customer. You're the product because you're free and you provide the data that they don't. Have you guys, has anybody ever like gone and looked up your Facebook kind of like how they algorithmize their algorithm of like things that you pause on when you're going down the screen and things that you like and all that stuff, they create a profile of who you are because they're creating a profile of human data of motivations and desires that we're not even aware of, right? Have you guys ever heard of this thing where like somebody will, like I've heard stories where it's like somebody will find out that they're pregnant because of Facebook ads rather than like actual like old fashioned way, right? And it's because Facebook is algorithmizing, right? They're following all of your data, and they can piece together dynamics of how you are operating and things that are going on in your life before you even are aware of it. Like, it's insane. Like, I'm not making that stuff up. It's because you are the product and you're not the customer, and that's why this is a device that comes and it is invasive, right? It comes in and it seeks to manipulate who you are. Right, this is from Mark Zuckerberg's interview in front of the Congress. Um, Senator Hatch from Utah says, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? And he asks Mark Zuckerberg, he says, Senator, we run ads. Right? That's, that's the way that they make money. That's, that's not designed to be this uh, altruistic global community. It's because the way that these devices and their products are designed is they're designed basically incorporating a high degree, a great amount of a behavior addiction research 
into how they're designed. And that's not just kind of like a conspiracy theorist thing that I'm making up. They actually, they have on staff segments of their corporation that are addiction science researchers. And the way that works is they understand, do you guys, has you guys ever heard the word dopamine? We're hitting a recovery center, but you know, the word dopamine is any little kind of like chemical release in your brain where you have something that happens that you like. So the way it works in like, like addictions is I take this substance and it helps me feel good and that dopamine reinforces that this behavior will help me feel good and be happier, right? So the way they do that you can use that in terms of like behavior science. So this behavior is going to, I, I've got some, you guys are going to correct me later on. Sorry, we've got some, some nerd people over here who know all this stuff. Um, but the way, so don't interrupt me now, but just correct me. <laughs> but they, the way that works is it, it, you, it have so, you, you do something that you enjoy and the dopamine is released so that your brain is kind of like plastic. It can kind of be shaped. So I enjoyed this, this situation, or I enjoyed this cat video, <laughs> you know. Oh, that, that gives them a pleasurable experience. So they're going to, the, the way that works is that, have you guys ever caught Facebook on, or Instagram on this? I'm just going to lay it out there. I will post pictures, and then I'll go back to see how many people liked my pictures. <laughs> and I will go back and see that on the picture, there's, you know, what, 10 people that like my picture, but Instagram will only tell me about it two hours later because they know the optimal time to tell me when I've, my pictures have been liked so that not only do I know that my pictures have been liked, but I know at a, they know at, a, at the interval for how often they should be telling me how much my things have been liked. So that, therefore, the way that those are designed is to kind of basically rope you into having these dopamine experiences, right, where you want to continue to come back for the pleasure that it provides, right? See, it's manipulating you, right? It's not bad to like for people to like your cat video. I mean, it's bad to like cats, but it's not bad. It's not bad for people to like your cat videos. <laughs> it's, um, but the way that that works is that they are roping it. So, like streaks on Snapchat, right? Well, if you let it go for longer than a certain amount of period of time, you're going to lose your streak. So you get, you know, a 180-day streak on something, right? They're designing that so that you can, they, they rope you back in. And the reason they want to rope you back in is so they can give you ads, right? <laughs> so that ads to sell product and move human data so that they can make money. So that, so let's just say, the reason we're kind of covering all this, right, this can kind of sound a little like conspiracy theorists. This is actually true, right? I promise. I didn't just read this on a website. Um, is that it is designed to bring us into a continual use of this device. Some more data along the lines to kind of show how successful this has been, right? If you guys are tracking with me, Facebook and all this stuff are designed to rope you in to a, to a perpetual loop of wanting the chemical feedback and the relational experience of getting pleasure by these devices. And it's been successful. One, one point of data, most people spend between one and four hours on their phones each day and manage, and many far longer, right? There's been some apps that kind of track how long your phone tracks your, how long you're on your phone. So there's one app called Moment App. 80%, uh, 88% of users were overusing, right, by many hours a day. They were spending on average a quarter of their waking lives on their phones, right? So if, if you're spending four hours a day on your phone, or more, that's more than a quarter hour, quarter of your waking lives on your phone, more time than any other daily activity except for sleeping. 
Each month, almost 100 hours was lost to checking email, texting, playing games, surfing the web, reading articles, checking bank balances, and so on. On the average lifetime, this amounts to staggering 11 years of somebody's ordinary life. The average, they were picking up their phones was about three times an hour. Right? And Tony Rinke, in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, he says that our, we pick up our smartphones even more by about 4.3, about every four and a half minutes, picking up our phones. Right? So I'm not going to ask who's looked at their phone since we started this sermon. <laughs> But you see, nobody's forcing us to do this. The reason I'm kind of laying the land here is to say, nobody's saying, like, you must use a smartphone, right? Kind of like, you have to eat, right? That, that's an essential bodily need, right? I got to eat or I'm going to die. Nobody's saying, you got to use this phone or you're going to die. And yet we're so kind of plugged into it. And for me, like, I'm just thinking of all the times where I've sat on the floor with my kids or I've been in a meeting with my friends and I'm more consumed with looking at my phone than I am with engaging the people around me. That, that's where, for me, the concern comes. Right? This is not being forced upon me. I am becoming the product. Right? And it's having an effect on our humanity and how we engage each other. One study um, from Yale found that, found that online interactions aren't just different from real-world interactions. They're measurably worse. Humans learn empathy and, underst and understanding by watching how their actions affect other people. Empathy can't flourish without the immediate feedback, right? The immediate feedback of facial expressions and body language, how things affect people. And it's a very low, slow developing skill. One analysis of 72 studies found that empathy has declined among college students from 1979 to 2009. They're less likely to take the perspective of other people and show less concern for others. And I'm not, there, there's a difference between a causality, like one causes the other. But there's a correlation between 1979 and 2009. There's a rise of the use of internet and our cell phones and the way we engage news and other people. And there's been a marked effect. I'm sure some of us feel that in the way the news cycle goes these days. A marked effect, a marked decline in our empathy for other people. It's because we are, in effect, being discipled by these internet tools. And in the process, we're losing our humanity. We're being discipled. And so that's kind of, that's just kind of the lay of the land, right? If you want more on all that stuff, I can give you all the books and articles and research. But I just want to cover that just to kind of say, here's, here's the reality. These phones don't come with a, here's how to love Jesus and other people, you know, user guide, right? We're just now 10 years into having these things, figuring out, okay, how do we be faithful disciples with this? And so that's why I'm saying it. We want to fight for faithfulness with invasive tools, right? We don't want to just kind of just say, like, get rid of them. <laughs> Don't use them ever again. They're bad. If you use them, they're sinful. We're all going to take them out and throw them into the pond. Uh, please don't do that. Um, the purpose of this is to say we want to be faithful with these tools. And so th that's why I have come up with these five tools, so to speak, these five categories of realities that give us a little bit of some handlebars, some realities to check how these de are designed to, to work with us or against us and so or undermine our humanity. So we're going to go to the first one. We are designed with analog bodies. We are designed with analog bodies. Let me kind of work through this one so that we can kind of understand why this is important. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What I want to pull out here is that we are designed to be physical creatures. We are designed to have all the limitations and weaknesses and frailties that come with just being a human. Like, that's the way God designed us, and that's okay. Like, that's actually good. There's a good design and being unable to keep up on everything and be at everything and like everything and be with everybody and be everybody's best friend. Like, that's actually not good for you. Like, the only person who can be everybody's best friend is Jesus. Not me, not you. Jesus has designed us to be physical bodies with limitations. And the phone, our phones are designed to make us think that we can keep up on everything and be as productive and successful as we think we can, or as God has designed us to be physical people, and it's good exactly to be who we are in, in embodied networks. Embodied. So this context right here, this is exactly how God designed us to, to be with each other and to know each other and to reflect his glory. Like, People weren't kind of like waiting to be successful Christians or to be connected with each other until the iPhone was invented, <laughs> right? They, for, strangely enough, for multiple thousand years, people were actually successful at being faithful Christians and loving Jesus and flourishing their humanity and being productive. We are created to be physical people, right? This is where you see some of the, um, in contrast to this, I don't know if you guys have seen kind of this discussion about artificial intelligence, or you see this like... Um, I've been watching to the Avengers movies recently. So you remember like in Winter Soldier, uh, I'm not going to be spoiler alert for anybody, but Winter Soldier, you got Dr. Zoloff, whose brain has all been like dumped into like this machine, and somehow he's still the same person. Like that's not, that's not what it means to be human, right? Um, we are often tempted by our social media stuff to think, if I can just have enough pictures or to, to post enough things, that I can, I can be that person. That's who I am. No, no, that's not who you are. Those are just reflections of your humanity, but your humanity is embodied. You are a physical person that's designed to be limited and have weaknesses. This is what it means to be human. One of the concerns I have for often how we use our social media and stuff is that um, we can use our online interactions or use our online life to project a version of ourselves as a means of hating who God has made us to be. Right? I don't know if you ever, you know, some of the extreme examples of this are the way internet is used to um, foster um, like thinspo sort of stuff where like, how skinny can I get? Well, can I get to be this skinny like this girl, right? Or how strong can I get? Can I get to be this strong like this guy? Or how smart can I be? Can I, look, that guy's read so many books, so I want to read these many books. We, we, we post and we kind of live in an online world as almost as a way of just like hating the way God's designed us to be. Like we, we don't like the way I am. Like I don't know if you guys ever feel this, but I, don't, I generally kind of live with this sense of like, I'm not exactly happy with the person I am. I wish I was different. Oh, I, can, I can create kind of like this fake version of myself online of, of who I am and who people think I am and all that. And it's actually a way of hating the way God has designed me to be. I, I'm in a bit of a journey this next year of kind of coming to a place of enjoying how God has designed each of us to be personally and uniquely. And that's not going to really be, be helped by <laughs> my online temptations, is it? I want to be who God's made me to be. And often the temptations of social media is to say, I want to keep up or to be this type of person. And it's actually a way of not enjoying who God has designed you to be. Like that's, is, that, is that connecting? Because I feel like it's kind of a big concept. But it's, we're not going to discover who we are 
through the through taking so many BuzzFeed surveys, right? <laughs> right. We we need to press into how who God is and His Word, and to enjoy how He's designed us to be, rather than trying to frantically allow this device to kind of tell us who we are, right? Second category that I want us to put up is we are designed for analog words, right? We are designed for analog words. Jesus made us to use our our uttered words to bless others. Jesus made us to use our uttered words to bless others. Uh, Ephesians 5, and this is going to maybe resonate with some of us and maybe be a correction for some of us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? God has a specific um, interest in the way we use our words because they reveal who we are. Right? And the reality is our online lives give us a great platform for cheap words, doesn't it? <laughs> right? It gives us, we can type anything and say anything, submit, tweet, publish, boom, it's out there, and the words are already having their effect, right? Did you know that the book of Proverbs, um, book, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's right in the middle of the Bible, it's like basically like all those like Chinese cookie sayings, you know, <laughs> like all kind of strung together, <laughs> and they are wisdom for how God cares about we live our lives. That book of Proverbs has more to say about how we use our words than how we use our sexuality, right? Often people will go to the book of Proverbs and say, here's what God says about sexuality, blah, blah, blah. That's true, but it has more to say about how we use our words, the, 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 the damaging and blessing effect of our words. And so when Jesus calls out, he says, right, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but is only what is good. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. Just so you know, there is no there is no context for anything that happens online. Right? The internet is not a place. Right? This is a place. This is a physical place. We have a context of our life together. The internet is not a place. Right? Like it's like shouting into an echo chamber of like black hole of stuff. You know, like there's nothing that you say that has a context online. The way in which we know the context is living together and saying what's, what's fit, what fits the moment right now. Not what fits the moment for me, because that's honestly like whenever I tweet something, it's just like, here's what I think, boom, you know? But when we're in a life together, my words matter and how they're uttered to help you, to bless you, to give you grace. God has designed us so that we have the limitations of physical words and how we care for each other, right? That's why um, letters and email are such like a tricky thing. Like we try to treat email like it's like a handwritten letter from the old days, right? Well, the handwritten letter from the old days, right? You had like to sit down and think about what I was going to say and then not make any spelling errors and write it out and send, like put it in an envelope, lick the envelope or seal it with a wax seal, right? If you're talking about like the super old days, put a stamp on it, walk it to the post office, make sure they got it. It had to mail there, so like it took like what three days to three months, however long it was. They got it, they read it, they knew it was important, and they did the same process in reverse. I could literally stand up here right now and in 30 seconds write an email and blast it to somebody, blast my anger or thought to them. Boom, it's done, and words are cheap. Right? That's where we have to think about what are the, how are our words? God has designed us to use our words to fit the occasion to bless other people. Now, I'm not saying don't use email, right? So please don't hear any of this as like a rant against like using technology. Like, it's not what it is, right? I've got my phone up here for crying out loud, you know? <laughs> like, but I'm just trying to give us some categories, some handlebars, right? So I think one category that I think about 
in terms of the relational impact of our words, the more kind of like logistical and kind of fact-based our words are, it's fine to do text and all that stuff, or you use encourage, just like basic stuff to encourage people. But the more our words need to draw from a relational bank, so to speak. So I, I generally don't do correction over email. I do it in, in person because facial expressions, tone matter. And often I can show you the record. <laughs> corrective emails almost always get manipulated to mean something that they didn't mean, right? Just to say, we want to use our words to fit the occasion to bless other people, right? In phone, in person, we want to make sure we want to press on this. And this is going to be really frustrating for us who are like addicted to like our phone usage, <laughs> because this makes it seem like I can be productive and get this done, and boom, it's gone. It's like, no, no. God has designed you with limitations as a human to sit down and be in an embodied, physical moment with somebody else to use words to find grace together. You can do that via text, and I do that with my friends. It's not as easy, and it's not as obvious, and it's not necessarily designed to help you do that, right? Is that are we tracking here? Is it okay? Just making sure. Like we, this is why, for example, if somebody sends me an email, maybe you've done this, and it's um, you want to talk. I want to talk on the phone, and I want to meet in person. I'm generally not going to do details over email. So just as a general practice. <laughs> All right, we're going to keep moving on because we don't want to lose our, our time here. We are designed for an analog community. This is maybe one that I, I feel a little bit more passionate about than others, but Jesus tells us to love our literal neighbors. We've talked about this a great deal. Let me read this for you. This is a moment in Jesus' life which, though he did not have a cell phone, I think still matters to us who do have cell phones. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, this is from Matthew 22, 34. They gathered together, and each one of them, and, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the two commandments depend in all the, all the prophets. Right? This is pretty famous for Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are pretty basic commands that basically sum up the whole of Old Testament, which is pretty good because the Old Testament is really long. Right? But Jesus says you love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That requires you to not only know yourself, but to know your neighbor, know your neighbor for who they are and what they need. John uh, Pathak, he's a guy out of Colorado. Um, he wrote this book called The Art of Neighboring. I'll recommend it. He made this ba basic observation. I have come to believe that as followers of Jesus, one of the worthiest endeavors we can undertake is to take the great commandment seriously and to learn to be in relationship with our literal neighbors. Right? This is how we got into this point as a church point. Right? We have, you want to know how much money we've spent on our marketing? <laughs> Like apart from like those little like invite cards, right? The number we've spent like zero dollars on our marketing as a church because we are committed to growing as a church, loving our literal neighbors, right? We live in this neighborhood, we live in the city, we live in the areas around, but we are committed to love the people in this neighborhood. And that's how Jesus intends to grow his church. Because he wants us to actually have the physical face to face, hug to hug, handshake to handshake, or just, you know, New England nod with the literal people around us, to care for each other, to know each other, to love each other. That's, 
the design of how God has made us to be a community. Like, the community online that we have is great, but it, I don't know if you ever had this experience in the old days of all these message boards and like, like somebody would just like drop off the message board for like ever. <laughs> like what happened to so-and-so? Oh, well, his life fell apart and he was never a part of the community again. It's like, well, it wasn't a real community. Because a real community cares about people regardless of the ups and downs of our lives and are committed to each other, to be Jesus to each other together, to love each other as God has commanded us to. And online life is a tool to facilitate that, but it's not a replacement for that, right? We, um, I'm concerned at times that we will be in community contexts and we will use this as a wall to wall us off from the people around us. If those stats are true, that we use our phone one to four hours a day, um, I'm afraid that a lot of that happens in our face-to-face interactions with the people that God's actually commanded us to love, right? And when I use my phone, often when I'm communicating to the people around me, there's somebody more important someplace else. That's not always true, right? Because if Michelle's not here, well, she's not today because the kids are sick. She is more important than talking to some people, and I need to know what's going on. So, right, these are wisdom categories, not absolute categories, but often these are walls. We talk about, you know, regardless of the politics around whatever was going on with the wall on our southern border, this is maybe the more functional wall that we carry around with us that walls us off from the people around us. This is um, Malcolm Gladwell. You guys know who Malcolm Gladwell is, right? I mean, he's got this crazy hair. He's like a Jamaican guy. He's an um, incredible scholar. And he wrote this article called Small Change. And this article was written back in like 2010, 2009. It was in The New Yorker. I'd highly recommend you go and read it. But he made this observation. He was talking about um, why, uh, for example, the civil rights work of the 1960s was effective, whereas often the civil rights work today that's online is rather cheap. And he said the social networks are effective at increasing participation by lessening the level of motivation that participation requires, right? So you think about back in the social, uh, social, um, I've just lost the word, social justice work of the 1960s, right? You would, you would have our black brothers go and sit in a diner and they would have repercussions for physically going and doing that, right? They would often get beat and dragged in the street. Now I make a tweet, <laughs> making some sort of comment about something and maybe it gets cited or whatever, but very little happens and it's required very little from me. It's not that the reason the command to love your neighbor is so hard is because it, it requires a sacrifice on our part, right? Do you guys remember um, back in 2010 or so, there was um, there, a situation happened in the Middle East where 300 girls were taken from a school and stolen by, uh, by jihadists or whatever, right? And this hashtag, bring back our girls, kind of got famous, right? You, don't, you remember how effective that, I mean, you had like Michelle Obama holding that up, right? You know how effective that was in bringing any of those girls back? How many came back? Zero, right? They only came back this last year because the people there who frankly don't care about social media gave them back, <laughs> right? That it's, it's ineffective in creating the actual change that Jesus wants us to be a part of, right? So he's called us to physically put our skin in the game. Now, use social media, that's fine, but use it as a way of keeping your skin in the game to care for your little, literal neighbors. Loving our neighbors is costly, deeply costly and hard work, right? You can't tweet people into the kingdom of heaven. For the most part, with few exceptions, virtually all of American missional advance, all of the advance in our context is going to be by loving our liberal neighbors, 
which is long and hard with fleeting success, right? Are you committed to loving your literal neighbors more than you are to the one to four hours that we're using our phones per day? That's what Jesus is calling us to, and as being disciples, right? This, is, this can be a hindrance to actually being faithful Christians to love our literal neighbors. All the while, I have the context for all my neighbors <laughs> in my phone, which should actually be used as a tool to get a hold of and serve my neighbors. So you see that we're walking a line here. All right, fourth category. We are designed for an analog mediator. All right, stick with me here. There's going to be a bit, uh, it's like, mediator? What's that all about? All right, here, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, part of what happens in the gospel is that Jesus comes in and stands between us and creates a new community around himself, right? That's the nature of the gospel. He comes in, he says, I'm going to be the focal point. I'm going to be the person in between all the needs, all the struggles, all the problems in your life. I'm going to be the middle person and stand between you and God and you and each other, right? That's the nature of what he says. So here, first, uh, Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing the ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that by making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So this is Paul saying Jesus is the center point of our community with God and with each other, right? He is the center. And what that means, I want to bring up that, that that's what that means to be a mediator, somebody who takes from one relationship and translates it to another, right? So my relationship with you, your relationship with God, it needs a mediator, someone who takes us like a bridge, right? Well, just pull out of that mediator word, that media word, right? Then it becomes a little bit more relevant to our situation today, right? Media takes the message from, you know, what, 40, was it 41st Street, Saturday Night Live? what is it, 41st Street in Manhattan or whatever, and it translates, it brings it to my television, and the media of the television shows me what they're saying, right? That's the media, mediator. It's bringing together things, and it's, it's requiring me to believe certain things, right? That this screen represents the reality of that situation, not only that, but it translates truth, and it creates a relationship, right? Whereas in the Christian life, Jesus is himself the mediator who brings the message of God to us and is himself truth and forgiveness and mercy and is himself grace. And he brings that and mediates that to us. Right? He stands as the middle point and brings that near to us. This is, um, this is why um, there's a book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you guys, I, I think I've quoted from like a thousand times. Like, if you don't have it, you should get it because it's fantastic. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during Nazi Germany. Even though he was a pacifist, he joined a, uh, a group of guys who were trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So, like, taking on a big uh, task, obviously he wasn't successful, and he was killed for um, his convictions. And he has been a... Uh, not the assassination part, his pastor side, has been an example for me. <laughs> just to make clear, I have no assassination attempts planned. Um, just, just for the record, for those who are listening. Um, <laughs> so, but his example of how to care for people, help us love Jesus together, he has this, uh, in life together, he uses this, 
this reality of Jesus being our meteor, which is just so kind of grab, grab my brain and, and, and led my heart in how we lead our life together. I'm going to read this whole quote, and I want you guys to stick with me. And if, if you miss it, I'll send it to you later, okay? Like, but I, I want us to get this together. Because Christ stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with them. As only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I may be saved, so others too can be saved only by Christ himself. This means that I must release the others from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate him with my love. I just want to pause there, right? Does this not, this, this, this device sounds a lot like coerce and dominating me through my own desire, through its own desires, right? The other person needs to retain his independence from me, right? You need to be separate from me to, lo- to be loved for, what, for who you are and for the one whom Christ became man, died, and rose again for whom Christ bought forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Here's the final point. Because Christ has long since acted decisively for my brother, before I can begin to act, I must leave him his freedom to be Christ. I must meet him only in the person that he already is in Christ's eyes, which is the meaning of the proposition that we must, ha- we must meet others only through the mediation of Christ. All right, let me read this just because I want to make sure that I'm getting my thoughts out clearly. Our phones are discipling us in how we think about relationships. Viewing people through the context of social media often means viewing them around ourselves because social media gives us a world devoted to appealing to our motivations. That means that the social media context where we engage with the people is designed in a context that's around my motivations, what serves me rather than what serves my neighbor. So we see people's happinesses or opinions and view them through our self-centered world. We often dominate others with our love, love for our self-agenda and for others. The gospel says God first sees someone in and through Christ, and we must receive others in Christ's love and his agenda for them. Those are very different realities, right? Seeing people's lives through Facebook is inherently a context designed to serve me. Seeing people through Jesus as a redemptive context where God is saving them to be like Jesus, and I'm just invited in his process. Right? Does that, dis- that difference seem very clear? We are joining what God's doing in the physical community that he's creating. So we want to use these phones to serve that context, not to draw it to ourselves. Right? So again, I'm just saying these are designed to be invasive, and we want to be, f- be cur- uh, faithful in how we use them. All right, let me close up because we're getting a little bit long here, okay? You guys sticking with me? Is it getting a little, you guys? All right, just making sure, all right? Because I can keep going on, right? You want me to... <laughs> All right, fifth and final point. We are designed to be analog priests. All right, we are designed to be analog priests. This is my final point, and this is critical to who we are as a church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, this is what Peter says about us. You are a chosen priest chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not been received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? The way that the priesthood worked in the Old Testament, so we think about priest, I'm not really sure what that word means. Priest in the Old Testament, here's what happened, right? People in God's community were messed up and broken and needed help, and they would bring, bring those problems to God. They would bring it to the priest or the pastor at the time, and he would say, okay, here's what God requires. This sacrifice needs to be made. They would make that sacrifice, and they would take that sacrifice into the temple of God, 
where God would, would bless it, receive it as a sacrifice for their sins, and then they would take the grace and mercy of God and bring it out to the people who had just, request, who had just sinned and needed help, right? So there's this, the priest is not just kind of somebody who kind of throws holy water on you and says, hey, be blessed and have a good day. The priest is actually somebody who actively goes and gets the grace of God for our needs and takes it to the community around them, right? You, you, are you picking up that picture where, where the priest does something, to bring people near to God, right? So not only does Jesus do that for us with him so that now we receive the mercy that we need for all the ways that we're broken and sinful and we need his help, but now he gives us grace and uses us as tools to be like him in the context around us. So that's why you can only be a priest for your neighborhood and city. You can't be a nationwide priest. You're called to be a priest for the people around you. There are, there are situations that you're facing struggles and lusts and anger and jealousy and addictions that your neighbors are facing as well. And the, this is the marvelous thing of the gospel. It says you're not excluded from being used by God. And the primary way in which you can join God's mission is to not only take your needs to God to get mercy, but then to know your neighbors and know that they have the same needs and find the grace that God has for them and bring it to them, right? Which often is through mere presence and faithfulness as a friend to the people around us. Right? That, that's, that's not something that our, our phone is going to be a wall to that rather than an enabler for that in most times. Right? Maybe we need to be less involved with national politics and national global dynamics. And maybe we need to be more involved with knowing our neighbors and bringing the grace of Jesus to their needs because God's going to use the needs that we have. The only difference between us and our neighbors and our friends who don't know Jesus is Jesus, not the problems, right? right? I've got the same issues. You've got the same issues that your neighbors have. Jesus has just chosen to sit at your table, and he's inviting you to take the grace you've experienced with him and be that grace to take it to them. Right? That is, that is what... I think will help us kind of think about how do we put these tools in their right place? Because we want to use them and celebrate them, keep tweeting, Instagramming, whatever, I don't care. But do it as a way of serving and being a part of God's design because this is designed to manipulate you. You need to be aware of that so you can be faithful with these tools, right? We want to be faithful with our tools and how we use them. So this is still an area of struggle for me. So I want you guys, hey, Jacob, you said this, and you're doing this. I'm like, hey, I get it. You know, let's, let's find grace together. It, it is still like a work in progress. But this is a category that I'm concerned that we don't have clearly enough in our view because we need to be faithful disciples with this, with this stuff. All right, can we pray? Father, I'm grateful for how you've saved us and you continue to use us. And I pray, Lord, as we talk about this little device and these little tools that reveal big desires and big areas of our lives, I pray that you would give us grace, God, to be faithful. Faithful, God. I want us to be faithful. You desire us to be faithful so that Jesus would be made much of and that you would seek and save more in our, con in our, in our context, in our neighborhoods, in our towns. God, we want to be faithful. So I pray that you would use these these times together to find grace to be your community of priests like Jesus and to be faithful with, your, with our digital tools. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. 
Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.